ago we had our Thanksgiving teaching. At the end of the teaching, I was enumerating some of the things that I was thankful for. It wasn't an exhaustive list, but it did have a few things in it that were a little different than we usually hear. And one of those things that I said was that we were thankful for God's forgiveness. And I remember as I was saying it, I thought, wow, that was from God. Because I don't know about other people, but sometimes I take God's forgiveness for granted. Because God is a forgiving God, it's part of his nature. And I was thinking we need to be very thankful for that. That's uh, one of those things that should be on the top of our list. And then during the teaching, I said, I think we tend to take God's forgiveness for granted. And then I also noted that um, if we're taking God's forgiveness for granted, I wonder if we're taking for granted the sin that we need the forgiveness for, you know? I mean, really, I think that's one of the aspects of fallen man is that we tend to minimize our sin so that it's really not so bad. And then the forgiveness is almost a nice to have, but not required. And that's completely not correct. (laughs) That is exactly not what God is looking for. Forgiveness is absolutely required every day, 24-7. We absolutely need God's forgiveness for everything. So I wanted to elaborate a little more on God's forgiveness today. I think it's important that we talk about it. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, look in verse 7. Uh, this is one of our common verses that we know. Very uncommon, though, in what it says. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he, what's that word? Lavished, lavishing. I love that. So God isn't a stingy giver. God lavishes his grace on us, and within that grace is forgiveness. So his forgiveness is lavish as well. It says, verse 8, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So God's Forgiveness is lavish, lavish forgiveness. Go to uh, chapter 4, verse 32. It says that we are supposed to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So the forgiveness that we have from God is in Christ. And as we just read, it's lavish, lavishing forgiveness. Um, you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians chapter 3, it says, uh, forbear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So the Lord's forgiveness, God's forgiveness, and the Lord Jesus Christ's forgiveness is the example. That's the example. And we look to their their forgiveness of us, and then we extend that forgiveness to one another. Okay? And that's important in this teaching, and you'll you'll see why. Go to uh, Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah 1. We've read this verse a few times over the past year. And remember, too, that this is Old Testament. This is before Christ. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, and look in verse 18. 
So God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So there's this there's this willingness, this desire of God to reason with us, to extend forgiveness to us, to turn our scarlet sins to white, right? To clear the slate. And this is crucial for us because mankind is beset with sin. We have lots of it. Uh, and some of it is spontaneous, impulsive sin. Some of it is deliberate sin where we deliberately rebel against God. Uh, Daniel 9, 9, you don't have to turn there. It says, the Lord our God is merciful, merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. So God is merciful. Go to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3. <clears throat> I love this section of scripture. Lamentations 3. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, and the word lamentation means uh, a grief, a grieving. Uh, lamenting. Um, so chapter 3, verse 1, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. At, at his there is referring to God, God's wrath, the affliction by God's wrath. Now, as we read this record, we're going to see a lot of Satan's handiwork, although they didn't call it that in the Old Testament. We have to keep in mind that uh, when we choose to walk contrary to God's commandments, when we choose to be disobedient and self-willed, there are consequences. There are consequences to that. And this is the whole idea behind judgment. Judgment is consequences or blessings. Um, we've chosen to walk away from God, and as a consequence, we've chosen to walk away from his blessings as well. And it's important for us to keep that in mind. If God sets up an immovable brick wall of his commandment, and I choose to run headlong into that wall... While it can be said that God bruised my head because he set up the wall, it can also be said that I bruised my own head because I chose to run into it. And that's one of these things that we have to keep in mind when we read, read the Old Testament and how things are phrased, that uh, what we're running into is God's judgment, and it's, it's correct to keep it in mind. God doesn't deliberately hurt us or impede us. He, he sets up judgments, and then we choose to walk with them or against them. So in verse 2, it says, He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Now, that's kind of interesting if you think about it in the New Testament, where it says, walk in the light as he is light. And here it's saying, he drove me in the darkness. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? But it isn't. It's when I choose to walk away from the light, I'm walking in darkness. That's the consequence of my sin. Right. So literally, God would never cause me to walk in darkness. Darkness is the consequence of my bad choice. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. And I know we all have felt that when we have walked away from God. Uh, a consequence of walking away from God is bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. Wow, there's a 
mind picture for you, huh? He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. Isn't that something? And we know, of course, that it's Satan who's doing all of this mangling, right? This isn't God. And you can see that evidenced, of course, in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to mangle. He came to heal. And it's important for us to keep that distinction. Verse 12, he drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. I think of the Psalms where David said, your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. And we can really sense that, can't we? So when you are walking contrary to God, what's going on with your conscience? It's it's in disrepair. It's hurting. And you feel like God's arrows are within you, right? And so that's the idea that there's injury being done to your conscience. Verse 13, he pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became a laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I said, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remembered my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. Man, I got some big goosebumps. <laughs> it is because of the Lord's compassion, because of his great love for us, that we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Just incredible. Just incredible. And, you know, I think about this, and this has got to be where we start. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that it's by the grace of God I am what I am. And... I just think that's important that there is no personal merit that I could ever offer that would achieve this. My destiny is consumption, judgment, and nothing else by my own means. And it's because of God's great love and great compassion that I'm not consumed, that I am what I am. And uh, and you really understand what, why it says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's one where it says that no flesh should glory in his presence that no flesh should, can glory in his presence. Um, verse 23, thy compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that awesome? Great is your faithfulness. You know, we all know that God is faithful. We sing that song that comes from that that very verse, great is thy faithfulness. It's one of my favorites. I get all choked up every time I hear it. That verse, it says, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Isn't that great? So God's faithfulness starts with his faithfulness and compassion and his faithfulness and love. His faithfulness is especially evident to us in his daily compassions and his forgiveness every day. Every day. New every morning. I don't know how many times I've gone to bed at night, dispirited, anguished, 
heartbroken and wake up the next day and God's giving me a, a slug in the shoulder and saying, it's a new day. It's awesome. Um, it's just a big deal. It says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait on him. The Lord is good for those who hope, whose hope is in him to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? So go to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. So we come across in this whole idea of forgiveness, we come across a verse that's a little troubling. Um, I remember when I was a, a new Christian and um, I had been raised Roman Catholic. So I got the whole judgment thing and, you know, eternal dues. And... Um, and then I was taught that that salvation was permanent, and that God's forgiveness is is permanent in that regard. And and uh, so I was pretty thrilled about it. But in the back of my mind, there was always this idea that it was too good to be true, right? And then I stumbled across this verse in Hebrews, and it seemed to confirm what I suspected. And uh, and we'll talk about this verse today. It's uh, verse 26. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. And there went all those good feelings of permanent salvation right out the window. And, you know, so what I would do is I would avoid this verse. You know, I worked out my, my whole doctrine, but I avoided this verse, as many Christians do, because they don't understand and when they have to come face to face with this verse, it seems to, you know, kick the legs out from underneath everything else. So, um, so we're going to talk about this verse as we do in this fellowship, the, the tough ones. Um, this verse seems to say that God's forgiveness has its limits. It says that if we deliberately keep sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice left. Um, that just seems incredible. Uh, it's the wrong understanding of this verse that has kept many a wayward, prodigal person from coming back home after they've went on their little prodigal journey, right? People who have fallen away from the faith and then they come back, they don't feel like they could ever measure up, and that's unfortunate. And, and the wrong understanding of this verse tends to fixate our thinking on the minor truths rather than the major truths. And we get into these gigantic debates about how extensive God's forgiveness is. I mean, if I read this verse, as many people do read this verse, God's forgiveness isn't very big. I mean, he's saying, well, you're forgiven, but the first time you step out of line, that's it, right? Is that God's forgiveness? No. That wasn't even God's forgiveness in the Old Testament before Jesus Christ. So whatever God was doing in the Old Testament, my Bible says that he lavishes on me now, right? So that can't be the way the verse is supposed to be read. Um, you know, I think about, does everybody know Seinfeld? Remember the soup Nazi? Right? No soup for you. Well, if you step out of line with God, no salvation for you. That's what it seems like, right? No salvation for you. You're finished. But we got to think about it. Great is thy faithfulness, right? God is faithful. 
and his compassions. They are new every day. New every day. We are, for, we are commanded to forgive others as God forgave us. I remember the record of Peter coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, if somebody offends me, how many times should I forgive them? Seven times? What did Jesus say? Seven times 70, right? In other words, an endless supply of forgiveness. And yet this verse seems to say, one strike and you're out. Isn't that something? God's compassions are unfathomable. Man's, however, his heart, his rebellion is unrelenting. So that's the truth of it. As far as the deliberateness of our sins, the willfulness of our sins, I mean, think about it. David sinned willfully, didn't he? Uh, Peter certainly did. Um, Paul sinned deliberately. Remember in um, Romans 7 where it says, That which I will to do, I do not. That which I will not to do, that I do. I mean, that's deliberateness. There's willfulness in that. Uh I also thought about Romans, how it spoke about the similitude, you know, those who sin after the similitude of Adam's sin. Well, what was Adam's sin? That he knew God's commandment, and yet he chose not to follow it. He disobeyed willfully. So that can't be it. So uh, before we get into that, I want to go to Psalm chapter 51, Psalm 51, and read about David a little bit here. So this is Psalm 51, look in verse 1. It says, For the director of music, or uh, yeah, for the director of music, the Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. <clears throat> according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. So, Here's David, and he's in anguish. And he's in anguish because he had sinned against the Lord. That had been pointed out to him by Nathan. Everybody remembers that story, right? In verse 2, it says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And it's interesting you know, the, to note here that this is what differentiated David's sin from Saul's sin. Remember, Saul said, it wasn't me, it was the people. And here's David in anguish, in anguish. Right. And that's the that's the biggie here. God is looking for the contrite spirit. When we do sin, we are deliberate in our pleading for his mercy and forgiveness. Uh, verse three, let me read it. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. It's a big deal against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely your desire, uh, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me. And I will be whiter than snow. Isn't that something? That God, the true cleansing of the soul, has got to come from God. It's got to come from God. Let, uh, uh, let me hear 
joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. I've prayed that prayer a lot of times. You know, when I've been unfaithful with God, I know I've been unfaithful. God knows I've been unfaithful. I can't imagine, you know, looking at God and saying, you know, I'm going to be faithful from now on when I've just betrayed him as I have, right? But God is able to create that heart within me again. And God can repair the most damaged conscience. And I think that's something we should always keep in mind. Um, we'll read it later, but it says, Jesus is able, able to save to the uttermost. Um, verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Isn't that something? I mean, where do we get this notion that ministers are perfect? Uh, I haven't given you that example for sure, but, you know, the idea that, you know, that ministers are supposed to be perfect and without sin when the entire Bible testifies to the opposite. I mean, it just isn't so. So I think it's incumbent upon us to be a little less brutal with our leadership, a little more understanding and recognize that, you know, especially with Christ, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. This was David. This was David, a man after God's own heart. And yet he's pouring out his sin and and regret in ways I can't say I've ever I've ever pleaded with God honestly. It says uh, verse twelve: Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a will. Yeah, I read this willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God that saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. And that's the response to every penitent sinner is to sing about God and his glory. You know, that your heart just overflows. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, here it is are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That's what God's looking for. Verse 18, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, the whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Isn't that something? So back to Hebrews. So what are we dealing with when we talk about these, that there is no more sacrifice? Well, we need a little context on this. We're talking about unbelief, unbelief, that the predominant sin elucidated by the entire book of Hebrews is unbelief and how to guard against unbelief. It's that deliberate, stubborn refusal to carry on, to continue on in God's commandments. And it was endemic to the Israelites as a people. But, you know, not just specifically them. I mean, the humanity as a whole. We're an unfaithful bunch, aren't we? We certainly are. Allowing ourselves to get tripped up by the world. 
And old Israel had voted a no-confidence vote for God time and time again. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. Look at verse 17. It says, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? To whom did God swear that they would never enter into his rest, if not those who disobeyed? Those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter the promised land because of what? Their unbelief. Their unbelief. And this is the context of Hebrews as a whole. And, you know, later on, Hebrews 10 is this unbelief. Uh, go to go to Hebrews 10. So we're looking for in uh, verse 1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And that's important to keep in mind. You know, I think that there's been this resurgent of these messianic Jews, right? They want to have Jesus and the law. And you can't do that. It says, for this reason, it can never be, uh, never by the same sacrifice, uh, sacrifices repeatedly, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Okay? The repetition isn't going to work for you. Verse 2, if it could, would they not have stopped being offered? Yeah, if perfection was available, then one of these days you would have done your repetition enough to get saved. But it's endless repetitions. For the worshipers would have cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Okay? Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the Jews had, you know, they had it in their minds, right? Every year. Every year you got a get-out-of-jail-free card or whatever. You know, that you did your sacrifices and you're good, right? So they were kind of used to the repetition thing. Verse 5, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made, right? Why not? Because people had the wrong heart, right? They had the wrong heart. And God, you know, with all the Old Testament, how does Tozer say it? Tozer says that the whole purpose of the whole Old Testament law was to teach mankind to be holy. That's why you had holy things and holy places. But the idea was to teach humanity holiness, right? And mankind uh, became obsessed with events and doing things and that their holiness lay in their own works. And that's where things went awry. It wasn't their doing things. It was God who extended the holiness. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So we were, what? Made holy. We didn't make ourselves holy. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, and who was this priest? Jesus Christ, that's right. He sat down at the right hand of God. Isn't that awesome? It was a done deal. Finished. Complete. No more repetitions. It was one sacrifice for all time. Verse 13. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't that great? That's just awesome. That's amazing stuff. Christ offered one sacrifice for sin forever and sat down at the right hand of God. That's amazing. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hold your finger here and go to Hebrews 7. It says in verse 20, And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change. You are a priest. Uh, what's the next word? Forever. Forever. How about that? Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guaranteed of a better covenant. So that was part of the whole repetition thing, right? What happened with the priests? They died. <laughs> but Jesus lives on forever. He's an endless high priest. I think that's amazing. Verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus be, has become a guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there, has, or there have been many priests since, uh, since death prevented them from continuing in the office. There it is right there. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. And in the King James, it says, save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Wow, isn't that something? That's his purpose. That's his ministry, is to intercede for the sinner. That's just awesome. <laughs> Such a high priest meets our needs, and we have them. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins, how many times? Once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect. How often, or how long? Forever, forever. Right? So the Jews, they were always filled with unbelief, always used to stubbornly rebelling, always going back and offering another sacrifice for their sins. Isn't that something? So, back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. 
And we'll pick it up in Hebrews 10, 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies, and that Holy Spirit there is God. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is a covenant that I will make with them uh, after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Isn't that wonderful? And we've read that, those scriptures in Jeremiah and Ezekiel who say the same thing, as well as in Corinthians, that God writes his word upon our hearts. Um, verse 17, then he adds, their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, there have been, where, where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. That's it. One time. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, not the blood of calves and goats and everything else, it says, by a new and living way. A new and living way. You know, I I just think it, you know, I listen to the Christians now who talk about how they are not dispensationalists, and they say it with such pride. A new and living way. That means it's not the same way it used to be. I don't care if you call it a dispensation. I don't. I think that pretty well sums it up. But if you want to call it something else, but there is a changing of the guard there. Something changed from one to the other. Um, let's see, twenty. Thanks. I do this frequently. Um, let me uh, verse. Yeah, verse nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence center of the most holy place with the blood of Jesus, not or by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from what? A guilty conscience. The conscience. This is something that God is repairing and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another to love and good deeds. Well, what's one of the ways to spur somebody to love and good deeds? Tell them who they are in Christ. Tell them that Christ has got an everlasting priesthood. Tell them that he ever lives to to intercede for you, right? that you are no longer hampered by your sinfulness, that we've been liberated because of God's forgiveness in Christ. This is, this is huge. It is huge and it's so essential. The problem is, is that with Christians, a lot of times what we do is we minimize our sin or we minimize God's judgment of that sin to kind of get around it, right? Instead of recognizing that you know, the severity of our sin is just as bad for us as it was for the Old Testament believer, right? It's the same sin, God's same judgment. But that judgment has been assuaged, is that, that's maybe not the word, but, uh, but dealt with in Christ, in his intercession for us. That's a big deal. I mean, it helps keep us where we need to be. Um, I, I think about um, Bonhoeffer, who used to talk about cheap grace. And cheap grace was you can do whatever you want to do, and <clears throat> God will let you off the hook because Jesus. 
Well, that's not it. We, we're missing the whole thing here. That is not it. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. That's why we can walk in the liberty that we walk in. Let us not give up meeting together as the habit of some is, or the habit of doing, some are doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, so the, the assembling together of one another, our church, the ministry, hugely important. Why do people not assemble? Well, a lot of times because they become hostile to God, hostile to others, uh, hostile to themselves. They, they take on this notion that they are the unforgivable prodigal person, right? That they have nothing good to offer. Uh, so, and then verse 26, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. No place to go. So, if you abandon Christ, you are left with a fearful expectation of loss. And that's what it comes down to. Eternal loss is the only alternative. Hold your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. And look in verse 11. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. It says, For no other foundation, uh, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he receives a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames, okay? So so this is the eternal loss that we're talking about here, right? You don't learn, lose your salvation, not at all. There's too many verses that say the opposite. But you do have loss. There, There is loss for your choices, your bad choices. So when we read Hebrews, we have to recognize that the book of Hebrews is a complete repudiation of the Old Testament law. It is. And it is the complete uh, establishment of Christ. So we think about it. What is the opposite of willful sin? It's your spontaneous or your impulsive sin. And what's the difference between willful and spontaneous sin and uh, and non-spontaneous sin? It's the conscience, right, which is made perfect in Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hiding place. So let's um, let me finish up this chapter here real quick. It says, uh, this is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will put my uh, law in their minds and heart. Well, let me let me pick it up down to verse 27. Look at verse 27. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Verse 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses, you know, when we're looking at the Old Testament, without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated him as unholy as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? So, is this a severe deal when we deliberately sin? Yes, it is. It's severe. We have treated 
Jesus Christ as an unholy thing. Okay? And that's what we have to recognize here is um, there is no cheap grace here. We can't see we can't see it this way. We have to recognize that it is just as wrong for us to treat God's judgments casually as it was in the Old Testament. That hasn't changed. It's just we have new beginnings that they didn't have in the Old Testament, right? I, th- I think the, the wording here is very interesting. We trample on the Son of God, or we trample the Son of God underfoot and treat as unholy, and that we have insulted the Spirit of grace. Verse 30, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember, those earlier days, when you have re- had received light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes just insult and persecution. You stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. How about that? And that's the real heart and tone of the book of Hebrews. Stay faithful. Don't throw away your confidence, right? Um, it will be richly rewarded, right? There's the rewards that we were just talking about. Do you want wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious metals, right? Uh, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little time, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. My righteous ones will live by faith. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. Isn't that great? So that's the idea. We keep pressing forward. And I looked in uh, the REV, and I was looking at what uh, John Shanehite wrote about this. And he said, he said, Scripture gives a severe warning to Christians not to take their lives and their salvation lightly. When Hebrews 10.26 speaks of sinning willfully after receiving the truth, it is reflecting back to the Mosaic Law, which had sacrifices for unintentional sin but not for intentional sin. We are told in 1 Corinthians 3.15 that there will be a day of judgment coming even for Christians. But the raging fire on that day will not consume the Christian, but rather will consume any accomplishment that is not built on Christ. How about that? I think that's an important distinction. The fire will consume the enemies of God and the works of any Christian who has not built upon the foundation of Christ. Okay, so that's what we're looking at that's going to be consumed by the fire. A Christian, no matter how disobedient, is still a child of God and not an adversary of God. And we read that in Romans chapter 8, right? Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nevertheless, God's love for his children does not mean that he does not notice the evil that they do. And on the day of judgment, both the enemies of God and the ungodly works of Christians will be consumed. How about that? 
So that's for us to keep in mind. Um, and then I wanted to just kind of finish up here in First John chapter 1. So if there was any question in your mind about forgiveness, <laughs> we'll get a chance to put that to rest. I am very thankful for the forgiveness of God. I tell you, it is uh, just, I love that verse in Lamentations about his mercies are new every day. Every day. Verse 6, First uh, John 1, verse 6, it says, If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and what? The blood of Jesus' son purifies us from all sin. And the the word I want to emphasize there is all. That means your, you know, your the sin that you commit without thinking and your deliberate sin as well. It's all included. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. God's heart for us is what? No sin. He wants us to walk sinless. But God is a realist. He knoweth our frame. He understands that we are dust, right? But if any man does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we do what? Obey his commandments or his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walks. Isn't that awesome? That's it. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think about when you, uh, when you witness to somebody and they first start becoming aware of God's judgment. It, it seems almost like a period that people go through. I know I went through it where I was just crushed, right? I mean, I was overwhelmed with God's judgment. And, uh, and, you know, that's an important process, I think. People need to recognize God's judgment, right? It's a thing. But with that judgment, they understand how wonderful Jesus Christ is, that it's the contrast that, you know, the judgments of God and the reprieve that we have in Christ. You know what I mean? If you're just offering Christ without really showing what Christ is saving you from, then I know, <laughs> And most people think they're good people, right? So I think that there is this element in fellowship that we do need to understand the judgments of God. It's important, not to the extent that people become broken through, you know, this bearing down on sin, but they need to understand that mankind is in constant need of God's grace in this regard, and we need to be thankful for it. Okay? So... Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for the truth of this. The Father, continue to open our eyes to the severity and the 
absoluteness of our sin, the completeness of our sin. But, Father, as you do, open our eyes to the completeness of our salvation in Christ. And, Father, just uh, we just want to glorify you and thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. It flies in the face of all your pride. It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. Even when the jury and the judge say you got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying set it free. Forgiveness. prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really frees is you. Forgiveness. Forgiveness.